Okay. The um, reading this morning from Ephesians 3, which is one of uh, Father John's favourite, and I think for most of us maybe one of our favourite passages in St. Paul that uh, captures the mystery of meditation. Uh, let's, let's begin with that again, because I think it captures the, the theme of the horizon of Christ that we've been dancing around. He says, with this in mind, I kneel in prayer to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, that out of the treasures of his glory, he may grant you strength and power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that through faith Christ may dwell in your hearts in love. With deep roots and firm foundations, may you be strong to grasp with all God's people what is the height, the length, the depth, and the breadth of the love of Christ, and to know it, though it is beyond knowledge. And so may you come to fullness of being, the fullness of God himself. So to know it, though it is beyond knowledge, that is coming into the pleroma, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of life which he has come to bring us. I have come so that you may have life in all its fullness. I was talking, had an interesting theological discussion uh, over the weekend with someone who was asking um, about the, uh, the, the, the struggle and about the, the cross and about the, the difficulties, I suppose the ascetical aspect of the spiritual journey that we're on and do we give enough emphasis to that. And I think it's a, it's a good point to make because one shouldn't, well, and we don't pretend that meditation, for example, is, is a, an easy path. John Maine said, more faith, not less is needed as you persevere on it. And I think he does clearly incorporate the theology of the cross into his teaching, into the theology of Christian meditation. Every time we meditate, he says, we enter into the dying and rising of Christ. How do we do that? By dying ourselves, by dying to ourselves, by leaving self behind, by taking the attention off ourselves. Not by punishing ourselves, but by simply shifting the center of attention out of our ego-centric uh, usual way of seeing the world where everything revolves around me and I want to be in control uh, to uh, a, a different world view, to a different perception of ourselves, to a different space-time continuum really in which Christ appears and we appear with him. And so, uh, th this is why we, we, we could say we don't look at what happens in the meditation. We could have a peaceful meditation in the morning and a very turbulent one in the evening. But where we see the change, where we see the reason, the logos for meditation, is in our life and in the new creation that comes out of that experience of union with him. When anyone is united with Christ, there is a new creation. So 
So this, uh, this question of moving towards the horizon, I, I, I like that symbol for a while anyway, because it, it, it introduces us to paradox, to the fact that we can only know because it is unknowable. The only way to, into a mystery is through paradox. Otherwise, we are just dealing with another problem, and we have enough problems as it is. And we are a problematical society. We are creating more and more problems on scales that it is impossible for us to really resolve without changing the way we see things. Uh, I was talking to a, a city planner the other day, and he said, basically now, cities are so su on such a huge scale and so complex uh, that you can, you can deal with the problems, but you can never solve them because they will simply increase uh, exponentially and what you solve also creates complications which creates more problems. So we're living, you know, this is exhausting and creates a huge amount of stress. So there is a growing sense of frustration but also of, of um, I think, a, a receptivity to what we would call a contemplative approach to these problems. Contemplative approach is simply one that says, let's simplify it. You know, I didn't, there's a, somebody I know who's a, a chronically ill and has been in chronic pain for all her life, really, and it gets worse and worse. And every so often, she has, she has a number of different conflicting uh, conditions. And so she's on uh, very heavy medi medication. And uh, she meditates through this uh, amazingly, but she uh, is on this very heavy medication. And every so often, uh, it all just gets too much for her system. So she goes into hospital and the doctor says, let's take you off everything. And then, you know, they, they cleanse her system of all of these drugs and she resimplifies her medication program. So in a way this is I think what we're facing uh, culturally, politically, economically and psychologically today. Uh, the need for simplicity and that need for simplicity is a, a symptom, an element of what we mean by sharing the gift of meditation. It isn't easy to be simple but when people are complex enough, they're ready to, as we are ready, to take on the work of simplification. God is infinitely simple, Thomas Aquinas said. So rather than continuing to increase our complexity and our problems, which leads to crisis and disaster and conflict and the craziness we see, around us, uh, we, should commit, we should commit ourselves to a program of simplification. And there is no end to that process of simplification. We either go on an endless program of com complication or we go on a, a journey, a spiritual journey, of continuous simplification. 
The only way into a mystery is through paradox. That means we have to pass over the event horizon, which surrounds what we call the black hole in black holes in the in the cosmos. Remember, black holes are not visible. We just know they're there because there's nothing else visible there, nothing else measurable there. The event horizon frightens us, but it also draws us towards itself. It has a gravitational pull. It's fascinating. We'd love to be able to look over it and then pull back and take a snapshot and come home and say, oh, I saw an event horizon today. That was really nice. And there would be package tours uh, <laughs> of the cosmos, you know, for two, two days on the event horizon, then come back. But we can't do that. We have to go over. We have to step over. We have to leave all our possessions behind. We have to embrace poverty of spirit. And this is the radical simplicity at the heart of our practice and teaching of meditation. And, strangely enough, maybe not so strangely, our greatest teachers of this wisdom today, I think, are children. And that's not so surprising when Jesus took a child and put the child in front of his bickering disciples who were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the church after he, after he had uh, established it. Uh, he said, uh, unless you become like this little child, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. You don't even understand what the kingdom of heaven means yet, but you won't get into it until you become simple like this child. And I think our, our uh, in, increasing uh, awareness of the uh, way children can meditate, like to meditate, need to meditate, and even teach other children to meditate with amazing simplicity and, and, and directness, that is a lesson for us today. We can no longer be observers at this event horizon because we cross the horizon of our own ego identity. We cannot be observers of this. And this is at the heart of John Main's meaning of the word experience. He says we can't experience the experience. We can't observe the experience. We have to just go into the experience or be open to the experience. There's actually no words we can, we can conventionally use to capture that. It's not dualistic. It's not subject-object as we're used to it at one level of our ordinary minds. We are drawn towards this, we need this, we have moments of grace in which we, can, we may have experienced this, but uh, at the same time we would, we would like to be able to remain uh, observers of this horizon, but we can't observe the horizon, we have to go towards it, go into it, and go beyond it. And this is why I've been saying that Christ is mystery, not only a mystery, just as God is not a being, 
doesn't make any sense to say God is a being. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll always give God an important place in my life. Um, big deal, you know. And, but it, and in the same way, Christ is not just one more problem that we have to solve philosophically or otherwise. Christ is, in our Christian understanding of the, of the revelation, uh, is the mystery itself. The mystery of the mystery. Everything is, a mis everything is mysterious, even our physical universe, even our own psychology, even the way our own brains work, even the way our own bodies and minds uh, interact. It's all very mysterious. We will never probably uh, compute it or measure it completely. But, but Christ is not just one more of those uh, mysteries, but is the mystery of all the mystery. The paradox of the divinely human and the humanly divine, of being at the same time dead and alive. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. But he remains dead. This is why we don't worship merely or, or follow merely uh, the teaching of this great um, uh, Jewish uh, rabbi uh, from the first century. In this, and admire him as a, an example of you know, human integrity and wisdom. We don't follow him just as a, as a, a, a master of wisdom of the past. We recognize that he, he has died. He has to have died. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the mystery. We would just be looking at a historical figure that we would be arguing about and debating. And creating in our own image, of course. So he is at the same time dead, but alive. This is the heart, as St. Paul says. The resurrection is the heart of our faith. Without it, uh, we're, not, we're not in the game at all. He's not just dead and then risen, but he is both dead and alive. He's wanted dead and alive. So to treat Christ as anything less than a mystery trivializes him. And we trivialize him, and that's what fundamentalism does. It, it trivializes him and reduces him to something ultimately boring and moralistic. And, you know, what would Jesus do about gay marriage? Well, Jesus of Nazareth didn't even have the concept of gay marriage or... Uh, and, and there's, no, there's no way that we can, we can say what Jesus of Nazareth thought about gay marriage. So what, does, what would Jesus do in this particular circumstance, about who to vote for or what to vote for and so on, um, is really a non sequitur. We're called to a much more mature spirituality than that. <laughs> there was a Catholic uh, 
priest actually some years ago, 20 years ago, who actually had a kind of a breakdown. But part of his breakdown was he, he became very antagonistic towards anything that he didn't think was 100% Catholic. And he didn't think that, he didn't think that Christian meditation was 100% Catholic. And so he started uh, attacking, attacking it, but I mean, he's exposed more of his own you know, suffering really than did any damage. But one of, one of the questions he said was, uh, one of the uh, things he said was, you know, there are many things we don't understand, but if you want to be able to, un- if, you, if there's something you can't understand or something you don't know the answer to, it's quite simple. You go to the Vatican website. <laughs> well, I think even the Vatican would say would uh, would not be happy with that. You have to keep the website up to date. <laughs> and then it's you know the other is the story of the Catholic priest who hosted an ecumenical event in his parish. And um, he was telling the bishop about it. He said, oh, it went very well. It was a very nice atmosphere. Really, people were so nice. Really, lovely. He said, but then I had the six o'clock mass that evening. And uh, he said, when I came back into the church I, uh, to say start mass, he said, I noticed that a lot of the people who were there for the ecumenical service had stayed on in the church. <laughs> so he said, I, um, I said, well, I'm sure they'll, they'll leave, you know. <laughs> but he said they didn't. And so he said, then I began to wonder, you know, what's going to happen? So the bishop said, oh, yeah, well, and what then? So he said, and then he said, I got closer and closer to the communion. And he, and he said, so I, I, you know, I'm sure they'll start to move away now. <laughs> and the bishop said, yes, yes. He said, then I realized, you know, the Lamb of God, you know, they started to come forward. And the bishop said, oh, God, what happened then? He said, well, I had, a, you know, this very difficult decision to take. You know, if I, if I said, you know, you can't come to communion, that would spoil the whole ecumenical thing. And... Uh, so he said, Bishop said, oh, what did you do? So he said, I, it came to me. He said, it was amazing. It just, you know, the spirit just told me what to do. Bishop said, what, what? He said, I asked myself, what would Jesus do? <laughs> and the bishop said, oh, no. So we can't. So what did he do? <laughs> <laughs> the story's endless. Point. <laughs> so, so we can't reduce Jesus, you know, to uh, somebody who's going to give us the answer to all our particular questions and problems. He doesn't solve our problems in the same way that we know meditation doesn't solve our problems. You know. If you're in charge of the Brexit negotiations and you sit down to meditate, uh, the problems will be there afterwards. Still be Brexit afterwards. 
And, uh, but hopefully you'll have a clearer mind and a calmer spirit and a more open and so on. So we can't reduce Jesus, as it were, to a fictional character of history. We can only be true to the Christian revelation if we surrender or enter into the mystery of Christ. That is, we have to admit that we cannot fully understand. We have to, at some point at this event horizon, let go of concepts and images and ideas about the very mystery that we are entering into. Otherwise, we can't enter into it. And this is Christian theology. This is the theology, this is Christian contemplative or mystical theology. As St. Augustine said, if you can understand it, it isn't God. The cloud of our knowing said, we can never know God by thought, only by love. So, that doesn't mean to say you can't have theological discussion, you can't have different schools of theology, you can't have uh, enriching discussions about different uh, schools of spirituality or different approaches to theology. Of course, all of that, we are... We are... Um, we, we, we need that as well, but ultimately we have to lay aside our thoughts. And that gives us a whole new understanding of prayer. The, or what we mean by the prayer of the heart or contemplative prayer, the laying aside of thoughts, as the desert teachers very simply defined it. Prayer is the laying aside of thoughts. That doesn't mean that the other forms of prayer that enrich us and build our community and, uh, and, and feed other needs we have, emotional and communal needs, that those other forms of prayer are not valid and enriching and, and so on. But it does mean that we understand the big picture of prayer. And the big picture is, is that we are entering, we are moving towards this horizon of Christ, we're going over that horizon into another horizon and we are laying, we are entering into it uh, not as observers but as friends as brothers and sisters as human, fellow human beings called into union falling into love So we have to let go of concepts and accept the mystical dimension of our faith. And that's, that's the challenge, I think, for our form of Christianity today. We enter the mystery in the silence of paradox. Paradox brings us to silence. We can, we can write uh, volume after volume of theology about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. But what is the point in, in, in writing those volumes after volumes if we don't appreciate the fact that, the, that what is real about that question cannot be answered, defined, or measured, finally, can only be evoked and therefore, we have to fall silent before the mystery. 
I, I met a well-known scripture scholar once and we were talking about prayer and he said, well, he said, I don't really feel I need to pray because he said, I'm working all day, you know, on the scriptures. So he said, why do I need to pray? I'm praying the scriptures all day. Well, uh, I, 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 I can't tell him how, whether he's right or wrong, but it would seem to me that we need times for, um, for thought, for imagination, for vocal prayer, for communal prayer, for singing prayer. Um, but we also need times in which we lay aside all thoughts, words, forms, and imagination. And we have to, the challenge is, perhaps first of all, to accept that, that we need the apophatic and the cataphatic, both left and right, but also the challenge is to weave that into our daily lives. So we enter the mystery in that silence of paradox where we have nothing more to say because we have reached that very fine, subtle point of balance. And then we find a new way as we go over that horizon, a new creation, a new sense of time. That's why when we start to meditate, uh, and it, as it becomes part of our life, we, we feel less stressed and we feel that we can do more things. Speak to, you know, executives. I mean, I've spoken to, to some of you here who are retired and you said to me, it's still difficult for you in retirement to find time for meditation. So it's not about stress, stressful work. It's about, you know, prioritizing. The uh, general counsel of the IMF is a meditator, part of our executive committee, uh, Sean Hagen. And when he comes to speak to our MBA students in Washington every year, they always say to him, well, this is amazing that you meditate. How do you find time to meditate? And he, he, he never, never makes a big deal about that question. He just sort of shrugs and he says, well, you know, it's like everything else. He said, it's a question of priorities. And he says, if I'm sitting at my desk and the managing director calls me and says, I need to see you, Sean, immediately, I don't, I don't say, oh, I'm very sorry, I don't have time this week. <laughs> so it, he says it, it's just part of the prioritization of, of life. So a new sense of time, a new vision of creation, and a whole new set of real values. Real values. I've been involved recently in Regents University in London with uh, some of their work in uh, values. And um, when... Uh, And th th this, this was uh, promoted, really, during the chancellorship of uh, John Drew's meditator. And um, at first he met a little resistance to this because somebody said to him, well, we've done values. <laughs> Don't need to do values anymore. And uh, anyway, he, he dealt with that. And now there is a real serious discussion, a real serious concern uh, and the students are very 
engaged by this. It's a way for them to really get into meaning. And so it was a great breakthrough. And I, I'm, and I think the contemplative spirit behind it and times of meditation also have led to this. And it's not just a question of picking out platitudes. If you look up uh, on the internet values, you'll, you'll find somewhere there's a website that gives you 350 different values. So you sort of take your pick. Justice, fairness, equality, I don't know, what else, all those things. But the important thing is, what are the values that decide your behavior in given situations? They're not so much applied, but they are evoked in you because of the circumstances. There may be a moment where transparency is the value you need to practice, even though it's inconvenient or dangerous to do it, but you really feel, I have to be open about this. But on another occasion, the value might be prudence. Uh, and there is integrity in both. That's why the Desert Fathers said, you know, the mother of virtue is discretion. Discretion is the ability, it's almost intuitive ability, to recognize what is right in particular circumstances. But I think meditation, as, as a contemplative work that changes our mind, metanoia, changes our mind, gives us a new sense of time and a new sense, above all, of relationship to the friendly relationship to the world around us, where we see strangers and enemies in a new light and refugees and asylum seekers. We see them in a new light. Meditation is the answer to fundamentalism. It's also the answer to, to prejudice of all kinds. So then we're able, I think, to prioritize. This is absolutely necessary in our era of what we call the post-truth world. The word post-truth became the number one word in the Oxford English Dictionary last year. Everyone was using it, post-truth. This is the age of alternative facts. So the president's uh, press secretary will, be, will, be will, will say, this was the largest ever crowd for an inauguration. And then one of the journalists will say, well, actually, it's not. All the people who were counting it would say it was one of the smallest. And the press secretary says, well, there are alternative facts. <laughs> so that's the equivalent of picking up some dust and throwing it in your opponent's eyes. You know? And that's what we're seeing more and more. We've got used to it even on the Today program. You know, how often do people ever answer the question that they are... And we can hear it. We hear them running around, and as soon as they say something like, well, what I would really like to say clearly is, you know that they are going to run backwards. So we've got used to that. And that, that's the frightening thing, is that it, we've got used to it. It's what we expect to... No wonder that we are hungry for any kind of political voice or political party or political opinion that says the truth as it is. 
will say sorry. Simply say sorry. One of the things that Sean Hagen says uh, to the MBA students is um, meditation has you know, changed his style of leadership. And he says he's much more, uh, or he, he has discovered that you know, if he makes a mistake or he does something that he regrets uh, with his team, he will say it now. And um, this in, he says this doesn't, this doesn't, it doesn't um, diminish your authority to say sorry uh, at all. It actually reinforces you know, the, the team and the relationship and gives you a stronger leadership authority. So, so just examples. The reasons behind the Glenfell tragedy are really are more of a priority than asking politicians if they think gay sex is sinful. But will we really examine those reasons? Or do we just or do we just go along with the fact that eventually this story will no longer be headline news? And it, it, the people who make the news will be able to manage the news so that we're no longer thinking about the radical divided society and unfair distribution even of safety standards that uh, exists even with, within one London borough. Or will we remember as we, as we get into all the complexities of Brexit for the next few years. Will we remember that the UK is the second biggest arms dealer in the world? Two-thirds of the weapons that we have made go to the Middle East. We've sold arms to 22 of the 30 countries that are on the UK government's own human rights watch list. So we have this list of you know, morally, moral values. Uh, these are people who are not observing, respecting human rights. On the other hand, you know, we're selling arms to, to two-thirds of them. 17 billion pounds, I think it was. 11,000 firms in the UK and more than a million people. That's a big sacrifice to make for values, isn't it? So how do we deal with that weight on our conscience? So, and then uh, let's, let's imagine some of the ways in which we would look at religion in the light of this experience of, of uh, moving towards and into the horizon. We follow Jesus as his disciples. We did not choose him. He chose us. So it's not, you know, choosing your spiritual path, choosing your teacher, Choosing your center of gravity is not like going to Amazon and trying to decide which, uh, which brand to buy. 
It is about knowing and feeling that you have been called into this relationship. And it may take you years, and you, like in any relationship, you will go through stages and phases, maybe disaffection, maybe anger, uh, before that relationship becomes fully mature. But we follow him because we are called. Our center of gravity is increasingly in him. We embrace him because he chose us, not because we, cho he, we chose him. So there's nothing to be proud about even in being chosen, the elect. You know, that's the, the worst <laughs> absurdity of some forms of Christian fundamentalism. You know, we are the elect. And, it, you know, you aren't. You know, you're the scum. You know, you're the detritus of the world. Um, well, look at the people who Jesus chose as his apostles. And look at us. And look at our churches. And look at the, f the failures and the weaknesses and the sinfulness of those whom he has called. There's nothing to be proud about. There's a lot to be grateful for. And there's a lot to be humbled by that we are called in all our weakness and in all our failures to follow him and to share in his work and to and to be given by him the particular work that each one of us uh, can do according to the distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit. So there is something very humbling and, and glorious about that, but it's not anything to be uh, vainly uh, proud about. And in this relationship with Christ, we find something very particular and personal and also universal. And therefore, the more deeply centered in Christ we are, the more he, we see him and feel him as our center of gravity, the more we find Christ wherever there is wisdom, truth, or goodness in whatever revelation that may come, whether it's through an artist or a great scientist or a great dancer or in other faith traditions. We are going towards the horizon, but the horizon is also coming towards us. And in that experience, our sense of who I am begins to change. This is why the ego begins to get a little bit confused and dizzy and the ego uh, diminishes. Our sense of who I am changes as we find ourselves in him and he in us. But that finding is not something we observe, it's something we know, although it is beyond knowledge. In the uh, Office of Readings for Holy Saturday in the Roman Breviary, there's a beautiful passage, uh, ex extract from a, a letter from a second century author in which Christ is speaking to, to us. And uh, this is what he says. For you, I, your God, became your son. For you, I, the Master, took on your form. 
that of slave for you, I who am above the heavens, came on earth and under the earth. For you, human, I became a human being, without help, free among the dead. For you in me, and I in you, together we are one undivided person. So this, right from the, the earliest Christian voice, one of the very earliest Christian voices, we see this experience, if you like, let's call it a mystical experience, but an experience of relationship, an experience of love, beyond our imagination, but not beyond our experience, not beyond our feeling and knowing. And I think this is why, uh, you know, contemplative Christianity today is, is essential for bringing religion in all its forms, in all its traditions, into a useful role for, for resolving the conflicts, the divisions and the problems uh, of our modern world. Religion isn't going to go away. We, we, we tried that in the last century, quite brutally. We tried to destroy religion, and it is, 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 is as much a, a failure as trying to destroy music, or science, or poetry. So we can't do without religion, but we have to make sure that religion, as it is lived, is... Uh, beneficial to humanity rather than easily, so easily being hijacked and, and corrupted. And therefore, we have a responsibility as religious people to uh, not promote religious competition. We're not in competition with the Buddhists or the Jews or the... I had a very nice Jew rabbi friend who said to me once, he said, uh, he, said no, I, he said, I used to have problems with Christians, he said, but now I realize that Christians are really the um, public relations arm of, of Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> he said, we don't, we don't go for converts, he said, but you do, but you're bringing them in. <laughs> so we have to get way beyond this, you know, this uh, historical and psychological uh, competitiveness and prejudice that exists inevitably between religions. And the only way we can do that is by recovering the contemplative experience, the mystery of God at the heart of all of these religions. So today we have to be very open in a new way to the way people belong. Belonging does not mean exclusion anymore. There is a need to belong. There is, in fact, a yearning to belong. And the word belong in English uh, includes the word langam, which means to long for. I long to belong. So in our experience of belonging, we are not, as it were, uh, barricading ourselves uh, against others and claiming that our citadel of the truth is, uh, is exclusively uh, right compared with any others 
but we are experiencing the longing of the human person for connection. For connection not only with others, other human beings in community, uh, but also with, with God. And therefore, this question, we cannot really, we have to lay aside this question, which is best? It doesn't take us anywhere. And it has been the curse of religion. Which is more truthful? Which is best? We have to just get over that. And that is the new holiness I've spoken about before, the new holiness that Simon Bay talks about. It's a, a new concept or new experience of holiness as inclusivity. That doesn't diminish, as the fundamentalists would say, the integrity of our faith. Quite the reverse. If we see Christ as mystery, as this endless horizon of the human journey to God, then this is the only way that we can really have a valid or a, uh, a fully uh, a faith in Christ that is fully in tune with the revelation of the New Testament. So religion is not about answers. It's about seeking, following, finding the answer in the question. It's not about separation and exclusion, but about relinking. The word religion means to relink. And the horizon of Christ reminds us that we will always be seekers. And if we are truly seekers, we will find. And as the mystical tradition, like Gregory of Nyssa, tells us, to seek is to find, but to find is to seek. We will always then move to another another horizon. And imagine what it, the difference between belonging to a community of seekers or to a gang of, you know, of barricaded uh, truth holders. The Greek word for this that uh, St. Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is epictasis, which is uh, to be constantly going beyond, from glory to glory, constantly moving beyond what we find. We lose, we find, we lose, we find, we continually move into this horizon of our, of our homecoming. What is the, what's the line from uh, T.S. Eliot? In the, in the horizon of our homecoming, is it? Do you remember? <laughs> Sorry, to put you on the spot. Yeah. Huh? Yes. The, yeah. That's right. It's about anyway. I'll look it up later. But yes, it, yes, it's about this explo exploration. That's what Eliot, in Little Gidding, speaks about. The exploration is the is the the meaning of life to be explorers and to come home and discover it for the first time. So, um, do we have a, anybody got a Bible with them? <laughs> I bet the other people do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got one? Oh, great. I've got it on my, on my phone, but 
No, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll read it, we can read it later. It's, yes, a New Testament, yes, yes. Thank you. So let me just read this. 2, two Corinthians 3, 18. Okay. It's, it's the one with, about we with unveiled faces. Um, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their faces. But when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's what happens when we meditate. The veil of thoughts, words, and images is removed. So the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. And to conclude from the letter to the Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this, and I am not perfect. But I press on to make it my own, to become one with it, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. My friends, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, that's Epictetus, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. So you'll, you'll see where you make your mistakes. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Thank you. I, I said how long for the talks? She said till 11, but I, but I thought she said till 11. Okay, let's get on with the questions. Um, I have to stand by you, don't I, Kathy? Yeah, okay. Uh, you, sh you said you were going to... She said, do you mind if I, if I keep your time? I said, no, excuse me. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. It's my fault. Yes. <laughs> She, she listened to the talk. <laughs> well, I did listen to the talk, and actually, and genuinely, a lot of the questions that were being asked huh. have actually been answered. And, and I genuinely mean that. And it's interesting because you didn't even see the questions. No, it's not a um, so I'm, I'm going to actually pick out two that okay. probably encompass the other key areas. The ones that we haven't been able to ask. Um, I would just invite you, if you have the chance, if it's a real issue for you, for that to, to hear Lawrence's response, then lunchtime. But, but genuinely, I think these two will probably cover much of what uh, we've been asked. Some scientists are calling this the sixth extinction period, 
whatever it's called, climate crisis is the biggest challenge ahead of the generations. How do you see WCCM addressing this and really engaging in this enormous problem? Hmm. Well, I think uh, it's, it's not by issuing statements. I think it's by encouraging dialogue and bringing uh, uh, a contemplative uh, perception to that dialogue between all of the different uh, areas of, of knowledge and politics and economics and science that, that are involved in this crisis. This is something we, we, we did uh, last year in Sydney. We had a, we had a meditatio seminar on the environment and we brought together uh, both spiritual figures including Aboriginal teachers uh, and also uh, scientists and economists and so on. So what came out of it was I think uh, a new way of approaching it, looking at it, and we were all better informed, that was one thing, and stimulated, and it, it, it made us realize what an important issue this is. So and I think it would be great to, to, have a, to have a seminar like that here in, in the UK. This is what Meditatio is for. It gives us the platform, the outreach, to be able to, to bring together on the same platform and in the same breakout groups, people of different, uh, of different um, backgrounds and skills. And this also enriches the community a great deal, but it brings uh, you know, the, the scientists, the economists, the politicians, uh, and the spiritual figures all together. So I, I think that's how we, we can do it. Um, it raises consciousness, it informs people better, and it does make a contribution to the decision-making process, I think, uh, small but important. So anyone who would like to uh, help to coordinate a Meditatio seminar on the environment next year, yep. come forward. Yes? Very good. Hasn't been a completely wasted weekend then. <laughs> so speak to Bridgie about it, will you? Oh, yeah, thanks. There are two questions that I'll, I'll pull together, and they also summarise a couple of the other questions that we had. Um, about ecumenism and interfaith at Bonavo, WCCM has always supported, I'm going to say it again, ecumenism and interfaith. So will Bonavo be autonomous and free to continue their initiatives? And another question, but related in some ways, is there a risk that the energy and effort required to develop Bonavo may distract the WCCM's focus from being local and developing the meditation cells? So mm. that mm. Well, thank you. No, good, good question. No, certainly Bonavo will be uh, an expression, manifestation, and a, an expansion of what the community worldwide has already become as an ecumenical community. And um, so, I, uh, so that will be the spirit of the place. And I, you know, I, think, and I mentioned the Archbishop of Poitiers yesterday uh, simply because uh, he, you know, it's, it's the largest group there and uh, but he's a very, very open-minded man. So, 
and uh, the monastery nearby is also a very ecumenical-minded community. So I think we're in good company. We won't, we won't, by being who we are and developing that quality and outlook, uh, the ecumenical outlook and interfaith, uh, we, we won't be uh, in conflict, I think, with the, with the spiritual communities around us. So that's important, that we are local. We'll, we'll be local there, too. It's important we're local there. We're not just an international group that's uh, planted there. So, no, I... I, I uh, would it suck energy away from... I, 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 I hope not, and I don't believe so. Um, what, is, what, what, has hap- what is happening, and thank God for it, is that the project of Bombo is attracting leadership and people who are giving their gifts, like the engineer I told you about yesterday, and the people who are coming to live there. So it's attracting people who will, who will understand what it's about, or excited by the vision, and will contribute to the energy. But the energy will go, will, more energy will go out than it will take in, I think. And that's why, you know, when we've been looking at draft programs and any ideas you have about what we should be doing there, we'll, we'll publish it eventually, some draft programs of the kind of things we'll have on. We can't get it all into one year <laughs> so far because uh, we've had so many ideas, but, uh, but we will be allocating, you know, time for interfaith, time for uh, stressing uh, Christian unity, time for the various... Uh, meditatio outreaches, but also uh, and and formation of teachers and group leaders. I would love to have you know a week of for group leaders from around the world, so that they could meet each other. We could have ten from I don't know five different countries, uh, so that they would be able to come together, see what they have in common, see how they're different, enrich each other, and then go back. I think charged up with you know, with energy and friendship. So, yeah, that's, that's the whole idea of it. I think maybe if this had happened 20 years ago, uh, it, it, it might have been too soon, even 10 years ago. I think it might have sucked in a lot of energy and resources, um, and it would have become... But now the community is so strong, really, and widespread, it's fragile and strong at the same time, uh, I think uh, a centre is now will now serve that larger community. So maybe ten years ago was too soon. Ten, ten years later, ten years uh, if we did it ten years from now, it might be too late. So I think this is the right timing. I hope so.